My Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And since the uh, movie-related content seems to be the stuff everybody is the most interested in, I had an idea not too long ago which I will now proceed to share with all of you. In the past, I have done a lot of Peter Jackson movie-related content. I have criticized the movies. I have praised the movies where I thought it was worthwhile. I have compared movie to book. I have explained things that were missing from the movies that were in the book. I have done all kinds of different movie-related content, including defend the movies uh, from CinemaSins where it was m merited. And, you know, there have been cases where CinemaSins was right, too. And I've admitted that. What I haven't done, and what I'm going to do now, is do a sort of CinemaSins-style review of the Lord of the Rings movies. And I'm not going to do all three of them right here in this one video, of course. I may not even do the whole Fellowship of the Ring, because there's a lot of stuff that I've already come up with. But the point being, if you really, really want to get nitpicky with almost any movie, you can find plenty of problems. And The Lord of the Rings is no exception. So what I'm going to be doing, not entirely seriously, so don't jump down my throat over this, okay, is taking a look at The Fellowship of the Ring, or at least the first part of it, and showing where I think mistakes were made that really should have been corrected a little bit in order to make the the narrative of the film a little more coherent. So, or, you know, just things of the nature that CinemaSins might do. Now, I'm not going to be picking out anything that's, let's say, just like scene continuity type stuff. Like, you know, there's, people will find, and you could see a lot of this stuff in like IMDb trivia and things like that, where it'll be pointed out that if you pay careful attention in the way that scene cuts are done, some level of continuity is broken because where one thing was lying here on a table, now it's over there and nobody's touched it. I'm not, I'm not talking about that stuff. This is purely more of the actual narrative coherence and actions of the characters, things like that. So with that said, let's start our very extremely nitpicky review of The Fellowship of the Ring by Peter Jackson. To start us off, we get... Really, we have to jump fairly decently far into the first movie before we get anything really nutty. Um, and the first thing that I found that I could really nitpick here was Sam eavesdropping on Frodo and Gandalf's conversation in the middle of the night. Well, not the middle of the night, I guess. I mean, it, they just <clears throat> Frodo has just come home from the local inn, so it shouldn't be that late, I guess. But, at any rate, Sam is eavesdropping. But we just saw him continue walking down the road after Frodo turned into the lane to go to Bag End. How did Sam know to come back? Why would he have come back? It doesn't make any sense in the movie context. And Gandalf's own words to Sam when he tries to explain his, his presence there kind of get at this, because Sam says, oh, it's just, you know, trimming the the trimming the trimming leaves under the hedge, if you follow me, and, of course, Kantoff says it's a little late for trimming the verge, don't you think? Uh, well, 
yeah, it is, obviously. In the book, this is very different because Sam actually is doing it in the morning when he is supposed to be doing it, and Gandalf and Frodo both know he's out there doing the gardening, and it's only as the you know, the conversation between the two go on that we get fewer and fewer references to Sam doing his work outside and it gets really quiet and then suddenly Gandalf's like, hang on a minute. <laughs> and then he pulls Sam in. So, <clears throat> Sam dropping some uh, late eaves, let's say, doesn't really make as much sense as the way it goes down in the book. And so, this was one of those where it was like, that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's no reason for Sam to be there. Whereas in the book, there is. This particular event might be before or after Sam, but it the way they time things in the movie is not exactly always logical either. But another one that comes around this time is the idea of... Well, actually, this, I do remember this actually comes just before Gandalf finds Sam because it's while he's talking to Frodo that it happens. But we get this scene of the Black Riders, of course. They leave Minas Morgul, and they're thundering down the road. And then the next thing we know, we get another scene of them, actually, in the Shire, just pounding as hard as they can, galloping those poor horses to death, which I guess they've done that all the way since Mordor. Uh, but anyway, they're going along, and this hobbit steps out with a top hat and a lantern saying, who goes there? Which is odd enough, because hobbits don't, don't really have night watchmen. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he steps out and he says, who goes there? And immediately the Black Riders just whip out a sword and slice the guy. We don't actually see the result of this, but we see his rather frightened expression just before the blow is struck, and we hear the impact of the sword. This doesn't really make any sense because like we already know that the black riders are trying to find baggins and they don't know where exactly they're supposed to go just a minute ago we saw them talking to a i guess a farmer hobbit who comes out of his door and the dog is barking which seems kind of like a subtle reference to farmer maggot but anyway uh the black riders just say shire bag he says, there's no packages around here. They're all up in Hobbiton. That way. It's like, that's not exactly a street address, right? I mean, they're all up in Hobbiton. Dead gum <laughs> black riders don't know Hobbiton from Eregion, okay? <laughs> they don't know where Hobbiton is. And he just says, that way, okay? So they get up there. How are they even going to know where Hobbiton is? They probably can't even read signs written in Western. I mean, maybe they can't. But, you know, if and if they get to Hobbiton and they know they're in Hobbiton, how do they know where exactly to go to find Baggins? So when this guy comes out and he says, who goes there, why are you just going to kill him? Like, you're just, just ride by. You don't need to kill him. You don't need to arouse suspicion. You don't need to do any of this. Because everything else that we see the Black Riders do, even in the movie, is more stealth and less outright battle. And this makes sense because the whole point is to find Baggins and not scare him so that he runs away and hides forever. So, you know, this is of course the way it goes down in the book, too. Everything they do is very calm, cool, deliberate. 
They're not trying to, you know, kill hobbits. They're trying to enlist them or, you know, whether through, you know, bribery or through fear or for whatever, to help them find Frodo Baggins, which they don't know his name's Frodo, but they know it's Baggins. So they're using hobbits to try to find Baggins, which is not going to be easy because it's not like they have a GPS locator for the guy. So the whole idea that they're going to kill the Hobbit Night Watchman is just, it, it builds the the dramatic tension in Gandalf and Frodo's conversation, but it's an absolutely absurd thing to do, and it makes no sense in the context. Now here's another point in Gandalf and Frodo's conversation that really gets a little weird. In his conversation, Gandalf says that unfortunately the enemy found Gollum first, and he says, I don't know how long they tortured him, but amidst the inane scream... No, the the scream, something screams in inane babble, they discern two words, Shire and Baggins. This actually comes right before the point that I just talked about. But how does Gandalf know this? How? Did he sneak into Mordor? Like, I, I, you know, it makes no sense. It's at least understandable in the book, because... Gandalf actually manages to talk to Gollum after he leaves Mordor and is captured by Aragorn and brought to the Wood Elves in Mirkwood. And then Gandalf actually gets to talk to him and he basically scares him into telling him, you know, a lot of what he knows. Here, that's not what happens. How does Gandalf get this information? Like, what? How does Gandalf know anything about what happened to Gollum in Mordor? We never get any ind- indication of how he knows this. And it doesn't seem that Gollum has ever been captured or spoken to by anybody that we know. He just, you know, escaped or was let loose, as later will be referenced in the movie, because, uh, you know, they Frodo sees him in Moria, and he says, you know, he, I don't remember exactly how he brings it up, but Gandalf says it's Gollum. He's been following us for three days, and he says, he escaped the dungeons of Baradur, escaped or was set loose. You know, so it's, you get the impression from that conversation that Gollum made it here to, you know, to Moria directly from being set loose and didn't really have any stops on the way. You never get the impression that anybody has seen Gollum since that point. So how does Gandalf know any of this? Did he manage to sneak into Baradur up to the torture chamber? And if so, how did he do that with orcs all around? I mean, just... It doesn't make any sense. Uh, Now, I get it. You don't want to have to go into a huge narrative explanation of, oh, yeah, Gollum was then set loose, and my friend Aragorn managed to capture him because we were looking for him, and he brought him to the Mirkwood and the Wood Elves, and I talked to him, and this is what I learned. You know, it, it draws out the whole process of explaining to Frodo what's going on, and Peter Jackson is clearly trying to rush through this to get Frodo out the door and on the way very quickly. But it leaves something to be desired in in the realm of narrative consistency because now we have really... I mean, like, what did he do? Eavesdrop like Sam did? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. So here's another one that... And, and again, this is an example of an extreme nitpick because this one can be easily explained if you assume a few things. But those things are definitely not stated in the movie, whereas they are in the book. 
how does Strider come to be in the Prancing Pony at just the right time, and how does he know that Frodo is, you know, going under an assumed name when he when he grabs Frodo and brings him up to uh, whatever room he brings him to? Uh, he mentions the fact that you draw far too far too much attention to yourself, Mr. Underhill. And he says it in a tone of voice, which tells everybody in the audience that he knows that that's a fake name. Now, you could assume that maybe he figured that out just by Frodo's hesitance whenever he tells Butterbur, you know, who he is when he enters, which would be difficult enough with Strider sitting off in some corner and the inn being full of loud, boisterous talk and Frodo barely above a whisper talking to Butterbur when he says this. But okay, fine. But how does he happen to be here at just the right time and, you know, know all of what he knows about Frodo? In the book, we get an explanation of this. He actually overhears the the hobbits talking to Tom Bombadil and follows them, and then we actually get a reference to him climbing over the gate after the the hobbits get in instead of, you know, actually following them in and having to, you know, talk to Harry Goatleaf. But he slips over the gate wall, and that's how he ends up there. It's like he just literally did happen to be around when they were talking to Bombadil, and he was on the lookout for them because Gandalf had told them, told him about, you know, what was probably going to be happening. So Aragorn already knows a lot, and we know why he knows it once he explains it to us. In the movie, it's just like, he just knows all this stuff, and he just happens to be there. That's absurdly lucky. <laughs> Here's another great uh, Black Rider moment, which makes no sense, speaking of Harry Goatleaf. And, of course, he's not named that in the movie, but, like, if you if you read the book, you know that that's who it is. When they go try to get Frodo after he puts on the ring in the Prancing Pony, they literally just break down the entire gate and crush Harry Goatleaf to the ground, which is pointless and also counterproductive for the same reasons that they killed the Night Watch Hobbit earlier. Like, you, if you want to catch somebody in a town full of people, and again, I really seriously doubt that Reed radar for the ring is so precise as to be, oh yeah, I felt him put the ring on, you know, that far away, and I know exactly his location right now. I just, no, that's not how that works. But, like, why would you kill the the gatekeeper? The only thing that can do is arouse, you know, all the fear and and alarm and everything that you don't want to create if you want to find somebody without them being alerted to your presence and therefore giving them time to run away. <laughs> it just, it, there's no reason for that at all. It just shouldn't happen. So, again, why? 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 Again, creation of dramatic tension, but this dramatic tension comes at the cost of logic <laughs> for the story. Speaking of things that happen in Bree, while Pippin is talking to a bunch of random strangers at the Prancing Pony, it's really remarkable how people are asking about Baggins. It's like, why would they be asking about Baggins, because Pippin's all like, sure I know a Baggins, he's over there. 
Okay, you know, in in the book, he actually is talking about Bilbo Baggins, but it's because he's got a big mouth and he's talking about stories that he thinks is going to make his audience laugh. And that's a thing that would make people, you know, at least be astonished, is Bilbo's disappearance. But why would the random big people in Bree, because he's not talking to hobbits in Bree. In fact, in the movie, we don't even see that there are hobbits living in Bree, which is a thing in the book. And so hobbits living in Bree at least might be interested in that sort of thing. Why would the big people be interested in that in Bree? Why would they be asking about Baggins? That's just created so that Frodo has an excuse to run over there and slip and fall and, you know, end up with the ring on his finger. And again, I understand you want to cut short how that happens so that you don't have this whole literal song and dance routine of Frodo trying to draw attention away from Pippin so that he can dance and then fall and then all this other stuff, right? But you could have found some better way of having Pippin talking about Baggins. For example, him talking about Bilbo Baggins' disappearance. Should have been real easy. So, and and the other thing too is, why is Frodo so worried about Pippin giving out his real name to a bunch of random strangers in Bree. Uh, okay. I mean, like, who's looking for Frodo Baggins? Sure, they might be looking for Baggins, but really, a bunch of just people drinking in an inn doesn't seem very, you know. Also, he never impressed on any of the hobbits that I really need to be incognito here. He never did that. He just gave a false name to Butterbur kind of on the spur of the moment, which, you know, in the book, at least, it was very deliberate. Gandalf told him, go under a different name, and Frodo was very careful to remind everybody, by the way, guys, I'm Underhill, not Baggins. In the book, we skip all that, and of course, it just creates this weird situation where, for no reason at all, Pippin is talking about a Baggins, and Frodo has to rush over there at the last second, and draw more attention to himself than he otherwise would have if he had just sat there with his head down, which also makes no sense. So Frodo's reaction to the whole thing is also completely counterproductive. Like, the whole thing, the way it's set up, the way it goes down, everything is just like, okay, that just made no sense. It was just a way to get it to happen faster than it does in the book. Again, you you sacrifice a lot for gaining that speed. When Frodo puts the ring on at Bree, we get another weird thing. He sees the Eye of Sauron, large and in great detail. (laughs) And I mean large enough to fill up basically his entire field of vision. Why? This never happens any other time, except on Amon Hin, which is a little bit different, because at least Amon Hin, there's like a... There's a weird thing going on with Amon Hin, and that, you know, in the book and the movie, that has to be admitted, because even in the movie, we get the sense of, you know, he's up on this thing, he takes a look around, and he doesn't just immediately see the eye, it's like he gets a telescoped view of Mordor, zooms in, and then goes up to the eye. Here, it's like he puts the ring on, and it's just, boom, the eye is there. It's like, What? This never happens again. It's the only time anything like this happens in any of the movies where anybody puts on the ring. And it's, you know, why is this there? And if it was, you know, that ridiculous, such that you put on the ring and you're instantly, like, in Sauron's immediate vision, 
he should have been so easy to find. <laughs> Ridiculously easy to find. Because, you know, he puts on the ring a couple times, you know, this isn't the only time. But it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And why is he seeing it anyway? And why is he hearing Sauron's voice, for that matter? Like, and why does Sauron say there is no life in the void, only death? Like, what, what relevance does that have to anything? It's just so weird, the way that goes down. It's just, again, building dramatic tension, not really for any particular purpose. Uh, it, it just, you know, scares the audience a little bit, and certainly Frodo. But it doesn't really make sense. After we leave Bree, of course, Aragorn leads the hobbits all the way to Weathertop. And when they set up camp, or at least sit down before they sit up, set up camp... Aragorn says he's going to have a look around, and he gives them a bunch of swords, which in the book they would have gotten from Tom Bombadil plundering the Barrow Horde. Um, but the question arises immediately when it's done this way, where did Aragorn get these, and why is he only just now giving them to the hobbits? It's like, you could have given these to them if you were carrying them around any time between Bree and Weathertop, and it might have been useful because you never know when they're going to need them. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to deliberately, you know, separate myself from you, and therefore it might be dangerous, so now I'm going to give you weapons. Which kind of begs the question, why are you leaving them alone in the first place? So, like, the way this is done just doesn't really flow well to me, because Aragorn does not need to be leaving them alone, Especially if he thinks that in leaving them alone, he is only now creating sufficient danger that they might need swords. And by the way, what are they going to do with swords against ringwraiths if they get caught by the ringwraiths? That's just... He knows, or should know, that if the ringwraiths attack, they're not going to have a chance against them with those little daggers. Four of them against potentially nine black riders. Now, in the actual event, it's only five, but they don't know that. So... What is he giving them the swords to fight off? And why is he only doing it now? And where did he get them? Has he been lugging these things around the whole time since Bree? Like, I mean, I guess you could assume that he found them hidden in a cubby hole somewhere on Weathertop. Because in the book, you actually do have something like that. They find some cut wood that's been set aside by rangers, apparently. So you could assume something like that in the movie. But... I mean, come on, why? But if he's, again, if he's been carrying it around the whole time, the other problem is, why are you carrying all that weight if you want the hobbits to have them anyway? Just give them to them now. Also, if they were in some cubbyhole in Weathertop, isn't it really convenient that there were four daggers that are good for hobbit-sized swords? Like, who would have planned that? That doesn't make any sense at all. So, there's really just... Not any good way to explain why this is the way it is. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Now, I'm going to wrap this up with another Weathertop event, because this is, you know, I've gone through a lot of things here, and I don't want to overdo it. But, you remember those Nazgul who were so ready to kill people at just the drop of a hat? <laughs> or the drop of a gate? When they come to actually get the ring on Weathertop... They are decidedly less action-happy and a lot more slow and methodical and just, in general, useless. 
<laughs> in in trying to obtain the ring. They've got so much experience killing unarmed people and and then you know they come up against four hobbits who all have these little daggers. They take care of three of them with basically no effort at all. Frodo drops his sword, backs up, trips, falls on his back and waits forever before finally putting the ring on and disappearing only, of course, to not be invisible to the ring rates. And then they just kind of stare at him and reach for the ring. And when Frodo pulls back, the guy is like, oh, I'm pissed at you now. I'm not going to put up with this. And I'm going to stab you in the shoulder? Why wouldn't you just... Kill him outright, and why hadn't you already just run in, grabbed him, and made off? Like, seriously, what? These guys have been galloping full speed ever since we saw them. And killing people willy-nilly. And then they finally get to the ring, which is the one thing they're after. And they they all form up in this little, you know, thing and point their swords in like a triangle like that means something and just very slowly advance like their main weapon is fear, which it is. And they do nothing. <laughs> it's just like, what happened to the ruthless murderers that we've been watching this whole movie? <laughs> They're not, you, you cannot reconcile this scene with everything else that has happened. It's not possible. <laughs> you know, it at least works in the book, you know, because in the book we never see them doing radical, action-packed things. They do lots of things by just slow, fear-inducing intimidation tactics. And, you know, the most action I think we see the ring race take at any point in the books at all is at Weathertop. And even that's kind of, you know, not extremely action-packed until Frodo puts on the ring. In the movie, it's like every time we see him, they're galloping. They are, well, except with one exception of the time when they ride up to the farmer's house and one ring race says, Shire, Baggins. Uh, other than that, every time we see him, they are chasing them down or riding hard, or something. I mean, like, even chasing them through the woods of the Shire, it's like, they find them, and immediately it's like a, a high-speed chase to the Buckleberry Ferry. It's like, everything we see them do is high-paced action. And then we get to Weathertop, and they're just like, eh, we're just gonna take our time. We're not gonna do anything in a hurry. We certainly don't want to kill anybody if we don't have to. Like, what? Come on! We've already seen them straight up murder two people for no reason. And they're going to sit there and do nothing to these hobbits. And then when it comes down to Frodo, they're going to stab him all right, but they're going to stab him somewhere where it's completely non-lethal. What? And they don't bother to grab him. Like, wouldn't it be just easier to grab him and go away and then kill him later if you have to? <laughs> Come on. Ugh. Okay. So that's, you know, that's that's the first chunk of the fellowship that I'm going to cover in this series <laughs> but oh man and again remember some of these are purely in fun uh some of these you can very much explain some of these are are problems i think if you really really want to get nitpicky uh but again this is just like me taking a sort of cinema sins ish approach uh with an actual bent of humor 
Okay, so don't take everything I say here too seriously. Uh, but seriously, the weather top thing really is kind of dumb. That that one legitimately is just a problem. Uh, but anyway, I will try to continue this series as I get more opportunity to actually watch the movies again and really take detailed notes on things. So this is just the first probably of several because I'm maybe a third of the way through the fellowship at this point in terms of stuff like this. So, uh, yeah, if you want more of me ranting and raving about stupid stuff in the Lord of the Rings that makes no sense because, you know, movies can't be perfect, you know, give me a thumbs up, share the video around to other people you think might find this entertaining, subscribe if you want to see more stuff like this or just anything about Tolkien in general, and of course if you're in YouTube, make sure you click that bell icon so you don't miss future notifications. And check the description for support and social links. Join me on my Discord. Follow me on the platform formerly known as Twitter for Tolkien-related trivia questions. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all my channel supporters, especially Paul Leone, Nathan Dufour, and Robert Kindling.